You're listening to an audio message from Palm Vista Community Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit palmvista.org. Great. Well, thank you, Al. Well, please turn to Luke chapter 2 this morning as we continue, actually as we conclude our Advent series entitled Glory. And this morning, the title of my message is Glory Unwrapped. And you're going to find that starting in verse 1 in Luke chapter 2. Well, church, last week we sang probably my favorite song that we sing every Christmas time, Come Now Long Expected Jesus. And this morning we sang my second favorite, which is Joy to the World. At least we sang part of it. I love the song, though I can't hit the high notes in that Chris Tomlin version, Joy Unspeakable. I love it nonetheless. But have you ever really stopped to think about the words and the things that we just sang just a few moments ago? Joy to the world, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ. Okay, I get that. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. And when I read that, I sing that. I understand from the song why we sing, why we should have joy, but what's his appeal to floods and rocks and hills and all the rest? Well, church, I think it's referring to something. Another stanza of this song, which you did not sing, that goes like this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. I don't need to tell you, we live under the curse in judgment of sin. We live in a fallen world. We don't just experience, however, all creation experiences life under the curse. Do you know what it says in Romans 8? That all creation groans. Yeah, the rocks, the fields, the floods, they groan. They anticipate the day of glory because they groan under the weight of sin. In fact, we read in Romans 8, chapter, I think it's 20, excuse me, chapter 8, I think it's verse 22, that creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption. And listen to this next phrase. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All creation groans and waits for the glory of God to be revealed. Oh, it's been revealed in his first coming, but ultimately in consummation in his second. See, the point's this, church. Christmas not only tells us a lot about our Savior, Christmas tells us a lot about the world in which he came to inhabit, the world in which we live. And as we spoke about last week, if you were here, last Sunday, we, as God's creation, we were, we're created for glory. We are wired for glory. We're wired to seek the glory of God, the glory of God that takes us out of our small, puny little worlds and thoughts, that takes us out of our concerns and our doubts, a glory that turns our worry into worship. See, we're, we're wired for that. We want it. It's that which elevates and connects us to that which is larger. That's something, that's someone larger and bigger than ourselves. But you know what? That wiring, 
so to speak, has been corrupted. And yes, the world we live in is anything but glorious. Cindy and I learned a phrase many years ago from an African-American preacher and his wife. It's called fixing my glory. And this is what it refers to. Not just women, but primarily women who go to the mirror, fix their hair, put on their makeup, and beautify themselves. When they do that, they are fixing their glory. Now, guys do a little bit of that, but we have less to work with, right? It takes a little less time. But for women, yeah, it takes some time, right, to fix your glory. So I used to, I remember in days past, I'd call out in the house, Cindy, where are you? And she'd answer back, I'm in the bathroom, fixing my glory. <laughs> Why would anyone attempt to fix their glory? It's because their glory is broken. Furthermore, that glory has been concealed. When we wake up in the morning and we look into the mirror, that glory is nowhere to be found. <laughs> it takes a little work. Now, as you get older, it takes a little more work. It takes a little more time to fix your glory, just to find your glory. <laughs> as you get older, welcome to life. Welcome to Christmas. Christmas is an acknowledgement that the world in which we live in is decidedly inglorious. It is. And the glory that we seek is often concealed in this sin-tainted and broken world. But Christmas is also this. Oh, hear this. Christmas is the glorious news that God has come to this very inglorious world in which we live. And that he came in the most inglorious manner and way to a most inglorious people. That's you and that's me. And this glory that we're talking about ultimately, it isn't found in a mirror. It's not found in ourselves. It's found exclusively in Jesus the one who broke into our inglorious world to give us the hope of glory. Church, I hope you get that. You get that, you get Christmas. For the main point to the sermon, really this morning, is simply this. That the glory of God that was once concealed has now been revealed in Jesus. In other words, Jesus is glory unwrapped. He's the gift for you and I this Christmas. Let us pray. Dear Lord, each one of us here feels the weight of living in a fallen world. Lord, most of our days are not spent on mountaintops living from glory to glory. Many of our days are spent in the valleys where we're well acquainted with the mundane of life with the inglorious nature of life lived here on a fallen earth. But Lord, in that midst, you came in our troubles, in our fears, in our sin. You came to this inglorious world and you broke in to show us glory unimaginable and to give us the hope of glory. So Lord, I pray that a hope of glory would shine in our hearts this morning, that it would be real, that it would be felt, that it would be known, 
that it be seen in you, O Christ, as we go through your word this morning. Amen. Amen. Let's begin with Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read the first seven verses this morning, and then I'll comment. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, I know most of us have all read or have heard this Christmas story from Luke 2. But what we can miss in these summary-like statements is the very context of his birth. It was indeed inglorious, rather unchristmas-like, wouldn't you say? I mean, I read this, the first seven verses, and I ask this. I say, where's the wonder? Where's the glory? I mean, it, it all seems rather hidden, doesn't it? And I can't help but wonder if Joseph and Mary felt the same way. That leads to point one, glory concealed. For what we have in these first seven verses is not so much glory. No, we have subjugation and scandal. First, subjugation. Let me explain. Why was Joseph going to Bethlehem in the first place? He was going because he had no choice. And that's the point here. At this time, Israel is an occupied country, and the people were forced to pay high taxes to Caesar. Caesar Augustus had called for a census. Why did he call for a census to be taken? In order to make sure he was giving, getting all the tax revenue that he could as much as possible. So Joseph, a descendant of David, goes to his ancestral hometown, which is Bethlehem. Do you understand for Joseph to go there, he had to take time away from his home and indeed from his work. There was no vacation pay. There was no per diem. He had to travel about 80 miles by foot. That's like you and I walking to West Palm by foot. And by the way, there's no record of him or Mary having a donkey. Okay, I'm sorry. This was a forced pilgrimage. A forced pilgrimage by foot that would take the average person many days, not weeks. It meant lost work. It meant lost income. All of it to line Caesar's financial coffers. From a human standpoint, this census was a reminder to every Jew. Oh, it was a very poignant reminder that they were subjects of Caesar. They were not free. And furthermore, that their Messiah had not come. If you've ever walked or hiked long distances, you get a lot of time to think, don't you? This is before the time of smartphones, iTunes, right? Spotify. You're just walking. And as you're walking that long, dusty trail, you have a lot of time to think. A lot of time to think about your inglorious situation and those thoughts that come to mind 
as you made that forced pilgrimage. But as hard as this journey was, I'm sure Joseph and Mary had other things on their minds as well. Perhaps, I would say definitely, even more pressing than the journey ahead. And that was B, it was scandal or the scent thereof. Notice that Joseph in verse 5 was to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Now, betrothed means that he was legally engaged to Mary, who was with child. In other words, unwed Mary was a pregnant teenager. And in Jewish circles, in that day and age, that was downright scandalous. Now, we know from Luke 1 that this child, Jesus, was conceived of the Holy Spirit, right? To the Virgin Mary. But those around them didn't know or they refused to believe. And so Joseph and Mary suffered. With this in mind, have you ever wondered why Joseph took this long journey to Bethlehem with Mary? As head of his, house, as head of his household, Joseph was the only one who needed to go to Bethlehem for the census. Why did he take Mary? I think we can make an educated guess, speculation, based on what we know from the text. Perhaps Joseph did not want to leave Mary in the last days of her pregnancy. Perhaps he wanted to be sure that he was there for the birth, not knowing how long this journey to Bethlehem would take. Or maybe, just maybe, Joseph wanted to spare Mary the ridicule and shame of having a child in her hometown. Joseph wanted to shield her from those condemning eyes, from those who would have considered baby Jesus as an illegitimate child. Whatever the case, this whole narrative so far leaves us wondering, where is the glory? Now, don't get me wrong. God is at work in this narrative. Oh, he's using the political and economic levers of Rome, Caesar, to bring Joseph to Bethlehem for the census. And may I propose that God is also using scandal or the scent of scandal to bring Mary with him to Bethlehem, where it was prophesied 700 years prior. But the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Oh, God is at work, fulfilling his scripture. God is in control. Oh, he's in control. But mind you, his glory is still concealed. But all that changes in verses 8 through 15, because there's more to the story. There's more than meets the eye. Yet only Luke, of all the gospel writers, gives us a glimpse of this glory. In the midst of subjugation, in the midst of, of scandal in the obscure backwaters of Bethlehem. Now, that's not inaccurate. In the outlying fields of the obscure backwaters of Bethlehem, God reveals his glory. You, you understand the significance of this? God did not reveal his glory in Jerusalem. God did not reveal this glory in the temple. God did not reveal this glory among the burnt incense. Among the cherubim in the Holy of Holies, God did not reveal his glory in Washington, D.C., the capital. God did not reveal his glory in the big city of Miami. No, God revealed his glory in Clewiston, Florida, in the sugar canes of South Florida, in Okeechobee. Amazing. 
And to whom does he reveal his glory? Look at verse 8. Look at it. He reveals his glory to a bunch of shepherds. Really? Point two, glory revealed. Let's read verse 8 through 15. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, we need just to pause just for a second to understand what is happening. Once again, these are familiar passages, but we can just read over them, and we can miss it. I can miss it. Do you realize it is in 400 years of inglorious silence since God has spoken to his people. And God chooses at this moment to reveal his glory. Now, angels had appeared to Mary. Angel had appeared to Zechariah, as we studied last week. But not like this. Nowhere are we told that the glory of the Lord shone around them, as we see here. Something's different is happening here. This is cosmic. What we're about to witness is the most glorious birth announcement ever made, sung and shouted by angels with a light display that would make even the most hardened shepherd shiver with fear. And all of this is made in the cloak of darkness on the outskirts of the backwaters of Bethlehem to shepherds. Go figure. You know, you know about shepherds, don't you? If you do, let me remind you. Shepherds are born at the very bottom of the social ladder in the Jewish society. They were illiterate hirings. They were, in effect, second-class citizens. They shared the same status as tax collectors and dung sweepers in that society. They were outcasts. They were misfits. And furthermore, they were not to be trusted. To quote one scholar, to buy wool or milk from a shepherd was forbidden. Why was that forbidden? On the assumption that it would be stolen property. Furthermore, because of their profession, because they handled sheep, the shepherds were considered ceremonially unclean and not allowed to go into the outer courts of the temple. Yet God came to show his glory, not in the temple. He came to those who were prohibited from entering the temple. And there he came to the shepherds to make his grand announcement to the very people, the so-called sinners, to the outcasts, the lowest of low. Friends, he came to reveal his glory to you and me. Who was excluded from the good news of great joy? No one. Not you. Not me. Oh, don't miss this. Don't miss the wonder here. Don't miss the glory. Let's read on verses 10 through 13. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace 
among those with whom he is pleased. Do you see what's happening here? The glory and radiant splendor of God is being revealed through the bright lights, through the multitude of heavenly hosts, the angels, who are singing and testifying to the glory of a person. A person who will be born to bring peace, shalom, to a broken and inglorious world. For the angel says, fear not, for behold, I am bringing you good news of great joy. They'll be for all people. See the phrase good news? Literally, I'm bringing you the gospel. Good news. That would be for all people. What is the gospel? What's well, clear? It's a baby. It's a baby. It's Jesus. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Here we go. A savior who is Christ the Lord. Once again, we can just read right past that. Let's just slow down for a moment. This gospel, Jesus, this baby is the savior. He's a deliverer. He's the redeemer. This speaks of his calling. In other words, the rescuer has come. If you recall last week, the illustration, the rescuer, the Phoenix capsule capsule has come to deliver and to rescue we who are those entrapped miners in bondage and corruption of our own sin. He is the savior. This is his calling. B, he's Christ, the Messiah. He's the rescuer, yes. He's a deliverer, but he's the anointed one. This speaks of his glory. He is the king that has come to rule in our hearts, to rule over you in righteousness, peace, and justice. How can this be? Because this rescuer, this deliverer, this Messiah is also the Lord. In other words, he is God. This is his nature. God has come in the flesh. Do you need a little glory this morning? I think most of us do. (laughs) Oh, you need to see Jesus. You need to see him as he is. You need to see him as savior, as that rescuer. You need to see him as the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of kings, the Lord of lords that has come to rule over your heart and your household and your very situation in life. You need to see him as God, God who has come in the flesh, who has broken into your inglorious world and to show you true glory and give you the hope of glory. Jesus is the glory of God. You need to look no other. All other is counterfeit glory, church. It's counterfeit. It's fool's gold. It's a tease. There's only one glory, and it's found in Jesus. We read in Hebrews 1.3 up there on the screen. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We read again in John 1, verse 14, the following. And the word that's referring to Jesus became flesh, baby Jesus, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In other words, Jesus is the glory of God. He's the gift of glory unwrapped, revealed for you and me this Christmas and now every day. But what's most stunning in this narrative, it's not that Jesus has revealed the Savior, King, or God to the lowly. It's that he became lowly. He became a baby. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped 
in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Let's just take the first part of this. God became a baby. To quote one author, the God who roared, who could order armies and empires about like pawns on a chessboard. This God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder. Even if the lowly shepherds could have anticipated such news of their Messiah being born, they could not have been prepared for what they heard next. Here's a sign for you. He's going to be found. You'll find a baby. Yeah, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying where? You know it. In a manger, in a feeding trough. No way. Perhaps you've come, you've come too familiar with this, this story. Not all that it points to in our songs and our plays. The Savior, the King, our Lord God, was not born in a mansion. He was born in a manger. Jesus came into our inglorious world in the most inglorious setting imaginable. A feeding trough to show us glory. To quote Paul Tripp, I was just reading a devotional this week from him. It says this, it means something profoundly important. That the cradle of this Christ's birth was a feeding trough in a borrowed barn. You are meant to pay attention to the fact that he wasn't in a palace attended by servants. It's important to notice that the first smells that entered his infant nostrils weren't oils and perfumes, but animal smells. How could this be? See, church, some call this a cute myth. First of all, I hope you, you see it's, it's not cute. <laughs> I hope you see us now and believe it's not a myth conceived by men to convince a skeptical world. Do you think if this was just simply a myth written by men, this is how it would have gone down? Not a chance. Get real. No, if I was writing this story, simply a story, a fictional story to convince the world, if I was directing this movie... Man, you know what I'd be doing? I'd be doing press conferences for Christ's birth. I'd be, in, I'd be hitting Jerusalem and the surroundings. I'd be hitting the Twitter feeds. And I'd be doing a little damage control, this whole Mary thing. All right? My advanced setup team would not be a man with long hair, dressed in camel hair, eating locusts, and hanging out in the desert. That would not, that would not be the man I would choose. I eat John the Baptist. I'd be working at the temple priests. I'd be working with the political correspondents. Forget a room at the inn, a borrowed barn. I'd be renting the whole town out. You know what else I'd be doing? I'd be clearing out all the animals as well. Get them out of here. Make way for the king. That's the way I would see it going down. Church, God's ways are not our ways. You know that. His thoughts are not our thoughts. In a most inglorious world, in a most inglorious manner, to a most inglorious people, God reveals his glory by sending his son Jesus to be born, to bear our flesh, to walk in our footsteps, to bear our sin upon the cross, that we might know his peace and share in his glory. But what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? What does it mean for us living 
in a world which is inglorious. A world, I mean, let's admit it, where we most days fail to perceive God's glory. This is where we're driving home to the application. I want to press in here. I realize this is a familiar story. Maybe you learn some cool, fun facts. I'm not interested in that. This is where we're going this morning. Here's the payload. Here's the application for this birth narrative that you've maybe heard 10, 20, 30, 100 times. I don't know. You see, especially at Christmas time, we can often feel the weight of unmet expectations that the season brings with it. We feel we ought to be happy. But in our heart of hearts, we know we're not. We can talk about the glory of Christmas and yet can seem so inglorious. Just like our lives can seem so inglorious day in and day out. Oh, church, this Christmas story reminds us that Jesus was born into a very inglorious world, your world. But catch this. In that world in which he was born, in one sense, didn't change after his birth. In this sense, you realize after Christ was born, Caesar was still king politically. Of the Jews, they still had to pay taxes. That scent of scandal, yeah, it undoubtedly lingered around Joseph and Mary until that is, they fled to Egypt as refugees. And the shepherds, they still had sheep to, to attend the next day. They still had many long, cold nights ahead. In other words, they still had to go back to the regular jobs. It might have all looked the same to the naked eye, but life was no longer the same. The birth of Jesus and the revelation of his glory meant something, and it means something to you and I today, even in this inglorious world and in glorious lives that we often live. It meant that the glory of God had come to earth to reconcile man and woman to himself and to bring us to glory through his death and resurrection. And for those of us who have placed our saving faith in Christ, for those who are here, who are saved, who are a child of God, oh, this means everything. It means that Jesus will fulfill every expectation, every dream, and every longing that he has placed in your heart. The expectations of how things ought to be. Do you have expectations? I know you do. We all do. It seems like Christmas time often brings our expectations and our longings into focus. I mean, listen to the songs that we sing at Christmas. Listen to the, the wishes of Christmas carols. Look at the movies that you watch, especially during Christmas time. What do you see in common? You see a longing for peace. You see a longing for goodwill, not relational strife especially among family members. You want to believe that evil will not triumph, that love will win. You want to believe that the Scrooge will see the heirs of his ways and repent. Like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, we want to know and believe that our lives really count for something and our labor is not in vain. It's also a time of year when we often feel the loss of family and loved ones most acutely. We feel it strongly because we believe this is not how it ought to be. Death should not be the end. You feel that? I feel that. 
We should not have to say goodbye to loved ones. Children's lives should not be snuffed out at their infancy or youth. We should all live long enough to realize our dreams. In other words, we carry these expectations and dreams of transcending our fallen nature. We long for supernatural. We long for paradise. We long for heaven. And we long for eternity. What are we doing when we have those longings? We're longing for glory. The glory that was revealed in Christ's first coming and will be consummated, meaning it will be fully ours at his second coming. Friends, let those longings that you have in your heart, don't deny them, you got them, of how things ought to be. Let those longings lead you to Jesus this Christmas. Those desires, those expectations. Hear this. They are not teases. And they're not mere fantasy. They were put there by God as we live in a very imperfect and inglorious world. Why? That we may long for and that we may possess Jesus by faith. Don't settle for any counterfeit glory this Christmas. Open the one true present that will never fade, never wear out, that will never disappoint. <laughs> I'll give a lot of gifts that will disappoint this Christmas. That will never disappoint. And they will never disappear. I'm speaking of Jesus. Glory unwrapped for you and for me. Yeah, this Christmas, the dinner might be a little burnt. The gifts may be a little underwhelming. The conversation among some of your relatives, just a little awkward. Maybe even tense. Instead of being happy about who was there for Christmas, you may be painfully aware of who was not there. A child, a relative who has passed, a friend with whom you are estranged. I understand it may be hard. It may be painful even, but it's okay. It's not the end of the story. Like the shepherds who heard the good news of glory unwrapped, Oh, this Christmas, let us, I love this phrase, make haste. Make haste and come to Jesus this Christmas. He's the glory that you seek. He is the fulfillment of every expectation, of every longing, every dream and hope that he's placed in your heart. In conclusion, let, us, let me now read verses 15 through 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up and sing Joy to the World as our last song. As we do that, let's keep quiet if we may and posture of reverence as I pray, as we prepare our hearts. 
to conclude through song. Well, Lord, we come to you realizing that joy cannot be manufactured, neither can glory. So we're asking once again that you would do by your spirit what we could not do and that you would show us a bit of your glory right now, this Christmas, as seen in Jesus, that you have come, O glorious one, into our inglorious worlds. And our lives are not the same because of it. Put in us the hope of glory. Lord, I pray. And give us joy now as we contemplate, as we sing about our glorious Savior. Amen. Amen. Let us rise and let us sing this last song, church. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more resources or see how you can donate to this ministry, simply visit palmvista.org. And be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming teachings.